and welcome to a new Bunker Daily. I'm Roz Taylor. You might not have realised it, but I'm a bit of a train nerd. I used to have a map of the Docklands Light Railway on my bedroom wall as a teenager because back then the London Transport Network was just a wonderful dream. So I'm very pleased to be welcoming John Ellidge, New Statesman columnist and founder of City Metric, the website about planning, designing, managing and living in cities. He's an expert on all things city and transport related. Hello, John. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very well, yeah. Which bit of which city are you in at the moment and how are things there? Uh, I am currently in London's fashionable East End district. Very, very on brand of me. I live next to a railway junction. So if there's any sort of groaning noise in the background, please be reassured that's a train going past, not something horrible happening. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, most important question first, Uber, good thing or bad thing? Oh, it's, it's, I mean, it's an absolutely terrible thing, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think if the last couple of months have shown us anything, it's that cities would be much better if we could find a way of, of taking the cars out of them. Not just because it would, it would reduce pollution, but also because, you know, we could, there's all that space we're currently giving over just to kind of moving cars about that we could be using for much more fun things like, you know, cafe culture or, or, or bike riding or, or just anything else, really. Um, and, and the popularity of Uber is kind of locking us into the sort of patterns of, of movement we've, we've been used to for decades. Um, and, you know, in, in the long term, it won't even benefit Uber drivers because the company's plan is very obviously to start phasing those guys out as soon as driverless cars get good enough. So so it's, it's an absolutely awful company that thinks it's above the law. Um, and and the, the less we less money we give them, the better, really. Last week, Boris Johnson told us to go back to work and get back to normal. But for those of us without cars and who rely on public transport, it's unclear how we can do or do that without a return to rush hour where social distancing is impossible. At the same time, we can't keep subsidising trains and buses to run virtually empty all the time. It's a catch-22, isn't it, John? It, it is difficult. I mean, we're probably going to have to rethink the, the sort of model, particularly in London, where for the last few years, the, the idea has been that public transport would, would literally pay for itself. Um, in fact, there's one, one oddity about London's transport network is because it's funded largely by tube fares and because Transport for London is responsible for some of London's bigger roads, um, tube passengers are literally subsidising road maintenance in London, which is which is not generally the way round you would expect these things to run. So so we're going to have to sort of rethink how we how we fund those things. Uh, probably the, the solution here is going to involve um, chucking more public money at the system and also accepting that some of those sort of ultra-high frequency services we've got used to are just not going to be sort of economical to run like that anymore. Up till now, we've been told only to travel on trains and buses if the journey is essential, but that advice is changing this week, isn't it? Do you think people are psychologically ready to get back on public transport? I mean, this is all intensely anecdotal, so I don't know how representative my, my social circle is, but it it feels to me like the world is kind of splitting into two groups, one of whom is sort of very you know, just desperate to get back to life as, as normal as we can possibly make it right now, and another group that is, is avoiding as much social contact as possible because they're, just, they're still so worried about um, the, the dangers of being out there and mixing with people and spreading the virus and so on. Um, and, and, you know, the, the question of whether people are psychologically ready to get back on, on public transport is kind of a subset of that, of that broader problem. Uh, there was actually a, a survey from the Evening Standard out earlier today, which shows that 88% of people would still say they're uncomfortable getting back on public transport. So I think this this problem is going to be with us for a while. Still, it's nice to have a sort of fundamental divide in society that's that's not about Brexit. So that makes a change.
Well, talking of fundamental emerging divides in society, let's talk about masks, because they're compulsory on public transport now, um, rather belatedly. But some people still aren't wearing them. And I see quite a few people, I think it's called low riding, where you pull your mask down. So it's no use at all. It's just sort of sitting under your chin. I, I do not understand why people do that. Yeah, um, it's not an attractive look, is it? it? It's not attractive either, is it? It's like a sort of blue beard and a sort of mini, yeah. Um, what do you think is is stopping them? And is, is the answer going to be to hand out fines? Because that, after all, would help TfL's finances. Yeah, it would. I don't, I don't know. It's kind of, I think it's just a sort of psychological thing. Where it just feels weird, doesn't it? We just haven't necessarily got our heads around the idea that this is just what being outside is like now. So I think we, we, we the government needs to be doing more to kind of normalize the idea that if you're out and about you wear a mask uh, just to get people over that sort of little little hurdle it is strange that until very late last week we had seen no senior westminster politician really sort of out and about in a mask they'd all been completely failing to do this relatively easy thing that would send a signal that this is just what the world looks like now and all i can think of is like they weren't doing it because boris johnson wasn't doing it and he probably wasn't doing it because he's got sort of limited awareness that other people than himself actually exist. Um, so, you know, hopefully now the Prime Minister has caved on that one, we will hopefully see that kind of start to filter down to the rest of the government and to the rest of society. But we shall see. I don't, in fines, I don't know. I think there certainly needs to be more done on enforcement because it's very laissez-faire at the moment, isn't it? But whether, whether um, fines are remotely enforceable at the moment, I don't know. It is difficult, isn't it? Because there was a case last week or the week before in France where a bus driver tried to enforce mask wearing and he was basically beaten up and died consequently. I mean, it's a big ask of bus drivers and and, uh, people on the tube to force people to wear them. Yeah, uh, and it's, I mean, that was an absolutely horrendous story. It's kind of, I I mean, I think all you can do is think this is just, it's only ever a tiny minority that are actually going to be difficult about this and I think ultimately the thing that will will get everyone doing it is is more likely to be social pressure than than sort of illegal enforcement so it's more about kind of just getting to the point where there's a social norm that if you're out and about you are wearing a mask I, I don't know how we do that if I knew how to direct society like that I would probably be much richer than I actually am I, I don't necessarily think that being legalistic about it is is the thing that's going to make a big change I kind of think it is just seeing other people doing it will, will have the biggest impact Transport for London itself and we're going to talk about other places in London soon don't worry uh, listeners outside London it's in a very bad place financially isn't it um, it's you mentioned that we might see services particularly high frequency services being cut, but are there going to be big infrastructure projects that we expected to see that are not going to happen? I mean, it's the capital budget is separate from the revenue budget. So I don't think we are go we are likely to see any big projects that are kind of already well advanced falling by the wayside. Crossrail, which is the the big one that's meant to it's meant to be open now, but it very clearly isn't. Um that that will still happen because it's sort of you know 95% complete there might somewhere down the road be a sort of knock-on effect on where we're like other other big proposed capital investments like the Bakerloo line extension or whatever those those may be slower than we were hoping or they may kind of fall by the wayside um but I I think in the you know none of that is gonna is gonna solve the problem now the fundamental issue for transport for London is that a few years ago um there was an agreement between 
then Mayor Boris Johnson and then Chancellor George Osborne, who are obviously now the Prime Minister and the Editor-in-Chief of London's main evening newspaper, um, agreed that TfL should be, as far as possible, self-funding. And it stopped getting um, the sort of government revenue grant that had paid for a lot of its services over a period of decades. It's much more dependent on fares now than not just more than it was in the past, but more than most similar transport networks around the world. Something like 76% of of TFL revenues come directly from the fare box. And if people aren't if people aren't travelling to work, then that is obviously going to have a massive impact on on the amount of money there is to pay for those services. I think probably what's going to have to happen is just the government is going to have to get comfortable with the idea that it's going to need to subsidise London transport again, because if it doesn't, the city is going to ground to a halt. And if that happens, then the whole economy is stuffed. So it has, the government has given TfL a 1.6 billion bailout, but that was with a lot of strings attached. And Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary, said at the time the bailout wasn't just to cover COVID-19, but the pre-existing poor condition of TfL's financial position as a result of decisions made after the last four years. This is Sadiq Khan bashing, isn't it? But is there any truth to it? Um, no, with just a hint of yes. Um, <laughs> like, I, I mean, I don't think... I don't think you can look at Sadiq Khan's record and think there is a man who is really, really keen to balance the books. It has not been what he's about. He's not been sort of tightening the... Like, like he, he froze fares. That was one of his his big promises before the 2016 election was to fr- freeze a lot of fares. That obviously has a knock-on effect on, on how much money there is coming in. Um, also, his other... It, it's surprisingly difficult to point to Sadiq Khan's achievements as mayor, but one of the ones that definitely does exist is a thing called the Hopper Fair, which means that you know, in the past, if you change from one tube line to another tube line, as long as it's one journey, you only pay one fare. That was not historically true on the buses, whereas if you switch from one bus to another, you would be paying for a second bus fare. And that was sort of a, a, an unreasonable tax on, on poorer Londoners because they're the ones more likely to travel by bus than tube. So Sadiq Khan came in, introduced this thing called the Hopper Fair, which means that as long as you, you know, within a certain period, I think it's like 90 minutes, you can change buses as many times as you like and it will still count as a single fare, which is, you know, that's a great policy. That's a socially progressive policy. It's not something that is is calculated to sort of increase the revenue for TfL. It was going to cost money. So there have been a few little things like that that have meant that there was there was less money coming in than there would have been under a under a Tory mayor, for example. But but this is all you know. This is all kind of very very small compared to the fundamental point that ninety percent of TfL's income has collapsed, has gone away because people just aren't travelling in the way they were, and so much of it's meant to come via fares. So it's a combination of that decision to make TfL self funded, which was introduced by a Tory mayor and a Tory government, and just the reality of of the pandemic, where there are far fewer people travelling than there once were. Looking beyond London, you said Transport Secretary, uh, the Transport Secretary's plan wasn't too bad. What did you like about it? Um, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to go overboard with 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 praising Grant Shapps. I mean, I think it's oh, go on, go on. Surprise us all. I, I mean, it's just like again, it's just like the state of British politics at the moment that you know any Tory minister who looks remotely in touch with reality suddenly seems like Cicero. Um, but but I mean. Shaps 
did introduce this sort of emergency transport plan in in April or May, where there was money put aside to increase frequency on bus and light rail networks throughout the country. It was talk of amending planning laws to make it easier to build, you know, emergency cycle lanes. There are bits of petty cash for things like bike repair and bike parking at stations. You know, all, all of these things are are. are positive they're also not the sort of things you would necessarily expect a Tory transport secretary to be throwing money at but the flip side of this is you know the the money set aside so that cities outside London could increase the frequency on their on their tram and metro networks was was I think 29 million which is split across you know five or six cities you put that next to the one billion pounds that he was putting aside to turn the a66 trans pennine route into a dual carriageway this you know it's peanuts so it's it, it, it it's not so much that i think he's been doing amazing things so much as he's not been quite the horror show that that i might have expected beforehand <laughs> Let's talk a bit more about bikes. By the way, listeners, if you have a spare bike that you would like to get rid of and is about the uh, right size for a six-foot woman, then get in touch because I can't find one anywhere. But let's move on for me. Lots of people have taken up cycling in lockdown. Others have um, failed. But as the roads get more congested, it can still be pretty scary. And you biked down Euston Road last week and you didn't enjoy it much. For listeners not in London... Euston Road is a polluted multi-lane obstacle course that takes 10 minutes to cross. But tell me what it was like to bike down it. So, yeah, I was all, this is a sign of how empty my life is in lockdown, but I was quite excited about cycling down Euston Road. Um, (laughs) One of the the many um, new cycle lanes that TfL have been introducing during the crisis was this temporary lane on Euston Road, which is, you know, it's basically... If it weren't for the fact that no one ever actually gets above about 15 miles an hour on it, it would basically be a motorway. It's like six lanes of crowded traffic the whole time. So TfL were promising to introduce a a segregated cycle lane to make it possible to kind of to get down there safely. And it would link up a number of the other uh, segregated cycle lanes. And, you know, theoretically, it started opening last week. What they didn't realize is when they said it was starting to open was that they hadn't actually finished yet. So firstly, it only exists on the eastbound carriageway. So I found myself, you know, fighting with uh, buses and cabs and so on, cycling west at the start. Um, And also it's not quite long enough to link up with those other cycle routes yet. So it does like randomly sort of appear and then disappear without warning. The the bit where it exists is brilliant. It's absolutely fantastic because it zip past the traffic um, beautifully and safely. It's just that there isn't yet much of it. Hopefully once they've finished it, it will will be uh, rather better. What about places outside London? Are they getting more cycle lanes? So, yeah, I mean, there is a... There's a website called cyclinguk.org, which is which is worth checking out if you're into this sort of thing, uh, which is kind of mapping all the all the all the cycling interventions up and down the country. There there are extra cycle lanes popping up all over the place. We're seeing them in Merseyside, in Leicester, in Southampton. Um, probably the the biggest and most exciting one outside London though is in Greater Manchester, where the Walking and Cycling Commission commissioner is is Chris Baldman, who who uh, sports fans may remember as a famous cyclist once upon a time. He's been very actively pushing this as a policy since long before the pandemic. Um, and, and the conurbation is introducing a whole network of what they're calling beelines, which will be segregated cycle routes right across the city. And this for, for, for a place the size of Greater Manchester, where you know most of the population live within a few miles of, of Manchester city centre, makes an enormous amount of sense. It's like it's quite easy to kind of 
start uh, create this sort of segregated cycle network and get more people uh, on their bike. The difficulty we've had is that there does sort of need to be a quite a big sort of culture change to get people sort of accepting that this is this is an improvement. We're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of uh, drivers and drivers' interest groups complaining that taking space away from cars will, will in- inherently create more congestion. That's not necessarily true partly because you know if you get people on their bikes there are presumably fewer people in cars but also because of a phenomenon called induced traffic which is you know if you if you create roads people will drive longer distances or more out of their way to kind of, to do their journey you know if you build roads traffic does increase so it does sort of stand to reason that if you start dismantling them you will also reduce traffic but psychologically i think a lot of people have not quite got their heads around the idea that this might actually just make the world a better place rather than just delaying their journey by 5 minutes do you think all those lovely images of uh, you know the mocked up planning images of green boulevards with cycling lanes and people sitting on uh, out, in outdoor cafes having coffee is that do you think covid is actually going to change our cities in that way or are we just you know dreaming in lockdown I mean, it's too early to tell, isn't it? It will change things. In a, it, it will certainly change things in a few places. I mean, in that you know there are areas that are being um, pedestrianised or, or closed to through traffic at peak hours for the first time. You know, we see, there's. I saw pictures over the weekend of um, Northcote Road in, in Wandsworth, which is a big shopping street running south from from Clapham Junction Station, which is just completely closed to through traffic. And it is, you know, it's it's probably putting it a bit strongly to to compare it to uh, La Rambla in Barcelona because this is Clapham Junction we're talking about here. But nonetheless, it is it is certainly an improvement on what's there before. And a lot of these interventions are probably going to stay after the crisis has passed. But it does also feel to me like. You know, the, the traffic on the roads is kind of getting back up to normal levels now because it's not just that people are traveling again. It's that people are scared of using public transport. So we're probably seeing some people do journeys by private car that they would in, in the past have done by, by bus or tube. Um, so I do kind of worry that anything that we haven't already done, the moment has now passed. What do you think about the future of cities, though, in general, in terms of whether people want to live in them? Because the... Uh, evidence I've seen so far suggests that people are trying to move out, particularly of in inner London boroughs with not much outdoor space, and are thinking of much longer commutes on the assumption that they're only perhaps going to go into the office two or three times a week. What where do you think is going to benefit from that? I mean, I am not convinced by this argument that you know this is that we are seeing the death of the city because people will have to come into town to work less um i think it's i mean i don't think we have the data yet i think it's far too early to tell for these broader social trends i also think it you know people are at different life stages you know it's not people don't just come into the city to work i think if you've got you know small kids and you've been squeezing yourself into into a relatively small space because you want all the advantages and amenities that living in 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 london brings i can see at this point where you might be thinking actually stuff this i'd rather have a bigger house in the garden because because you know if, if if suddenly london isn't there in the form it was before then what's the point you know living spending all this money on living close to it but i think people at a slightly earlier life stage perhaps where they kind of you know they're they're single they're out of every night you know dating and so on i think that's a slightly different dynamic and and you know the advantages of being close to things will still apply to a certain extent i think we're just going to have to wait and see really i think it, it, it's going to be months if not years before it becomes clear 
whether this has genuinely put people living off living in cities or whether this is a temporary phenomenon. But is it a good thing if London becomes less self-important, less prosperous? Does London have to level down so everywhere else can level up, as Johnson keeps saying it must? I mean, so my fear about this is that the places that will benefit will not be, you know, Manchester or Leeds or Liverpool or wherever it is. It'll actually be places outside the UK altogether. I think I can sort of imagine the sort of ring of commuter towns and suburbs around London getting more vibrant local economies if people are spending less time, you know, at work in central London or on trains commuting to work in central London. So I can see those places that are benefiting, but I don't necessarily think that's going to have a great impact on, you know, Wigan or those other sort of red wall places that we've spent so much of the last few years talking about because it's it the jobs are not going to move to to places in the commuter belts for for Manchester or Leeds or Liverpool they might they might leave the UK altogether so yeah. I'm I'm slightly concerned that that it's not so much leveling down as just seeing a drain of economic activity in other words it's Brexit's fault mm-hmm. isn't it. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying. I was trying not to say just like Brexit for about the fourth time on this podcast. <laughs> yes, the parallel had occurred to me. Yeah, and you've got a new book out soon. Uh, tell us about it. So, okay, soon is probably putting it a bit strongly. It should be out around this time next year. Um, I'm still, I'm still writing it. It's a sort of almanac of of interesting things I found on the internet. It'll be like sort of an encyclopedia written in a sort of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or, or Tristram Shandy style of just like me ha- having interesting things explained to you by someone who said a couple too many gin and tonics um, is kind of the sort of elevator pitch I've got in my head. But that's it. We don't have a name for it yet, which is going to make it very difficult for anyone to Google it. Um, but, you know, what space. Excellent. John, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you. Listeners, there's another Bunker Daily on Monday. And don't forget, you can watch our last live stream if you sign up to support us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Backers get lots of benefits, including an ad-free version of the podcasts, attractive mugs and T-shirts, and access to our live streams. Video from last week's edition is up now with Dorian Linsky, Naomi Smith, Alexandre, and me drinking gin out of a tinny. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. We'll be back tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.